Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And while you are turning there, that's the question for us all. How often do we pray the Lord's Prayer? We know it, right? Our Father is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who would sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. We know the Lord's Prayer. But how often do we actually pray the Lord's Prayer? I think that if we go line by line, we often pray, give us our daily bread, right? We're often praying, God, we have necessities, we have things we need. Please give us those things. Provide for us. We often pray that prayer. We typically pray for forgiveness. We ask the Lord to cleanse us of sin. We confess sin for what it is and we ask him to forgive us and we thank him for grace and forgiveness that is found at the cross. We pray for deliverance from sin and temptation. Lead us not into temptation. We want to be freed from that. But how often do we pray your kingdom come? How often do we beg the Lord that his kingdom would come? Uh, We sang about it. King of love, let your kingdom come. How often do we pray that? My goal this morning is that I want us all to leave this building praying more the way Jesus would have us pray. And I believe these verses in Luke, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, are an unpacking of that line in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. What does it look like to pray that way? What does it look like to pray for that? How do we pray for that? I think that that is answered by Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. So if you're there, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Now Jesus was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart saying, in a certain city there was a judge. He didn't fear God. He didn't respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection, or give me justice, or vindicate me from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her justice, legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you the truth. He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Father, as we dive into this passage, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. God, I pray that we would long for the return of Christ and that we would not grow weary as we pray and as we seek that day 
that he would return as we long for that day. Make us watchful. Make us perseverant. And teach us this morning how to persist in prayer, knowing that Jesus is coming quickly. God, be our teacher this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This passage, we can split up into three sections. Very, very simple, very obvious sections. Number one, the point is in verse one. Jesus actually begins the parable by telling us the point of the parable. Here's why I'm telling you the parable. Let me give you the point. Uh, Point number two is the parable itself, which is in verses two through five. And then he ends the parable with the promise. So we've got the point, we've got the parable, and we've got the promise. Let's start with the point. The point is in verse one, and it sets up the parable. He was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and to not lose heart. Now, this parable that's going to follow that is only in Luke. It's unique only to Luke's gospel. And it comes, obviously, right after chapter 17. Chapter 17 is very reminiscent of what we would call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. It's very reminiscent of an end times speech uh, sermon that Jesus gave, speaking of what the end times would look like. It's a shorter message in Luke chapter 17 than the longer uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So uh, there's also a noticeably different content. So we don't think that they're parallel as far as identical sermons just set in different ways. But they have similarities as Jesus is referring to what's going to happen in the end times. Let's just look at the context because chapter 18 is informed by chapter 17. In chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees, not an honest question, Not a question with good motives. And the question is, when the kingdom of God is coming? Jesus claims to be king. The Pharisees are saying, in essence, where's your kingdom? If you claim to be king, where's your kingdom? It's not a sincere question. They want to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus answers, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's right here. The kingdom of God is here. And I am the representative as the king of the kingdom of God. It is here in your midst. Uh, A wrong, incorrect translation of that verse would be the kingdom of God is in your hearts. That's not what Jesus is saying because he's not saying, you Pharisees who hate me and will end up murdering me, you are believers who have the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, if you would submit to the king, the kingdom's here. It's ready to rush onto the scene. That's what John the Baptist had said. The kingdom is at hand. It's at the doorstep. It's ready to burst onto the scene. And Jesus will be established as king over his kingdom. But Jesus knows that they are not going to accept his rule and his reign as king. So he is going to go back to heaven after he dies, after he's raised. And he's going to come back to bring the physical kingdom. In, in theology classes, we like to talk about the already not yet nature of the kingdom. Yes, the kingdom exists, but no, the kingdom doesn't exist yet. Yes, it exists in an invisible sense. We are all a part of the kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom. But no, it hasn't come yet in a physical sense. The millennial kingdom, when Jesus returns, Revelation 20 tells us about the beauty of that moment when he comes back and he establishes his kingdom and he fulfills his promises to Israel. That hasn't happened yet. So yes, we're in the kingdom, but no, we're not in the kingdom. So Jesus tells the Pharisees, hey, the kingdom's here if you would have it. There's an invisible sense where the kingdom's here if you would have it. But then, verse 22, he tells his disciples, the kingdom's yet to come. And it is coming in signs that you can see. 
It's going to be so obvious, Jesus says, that it's like a flash of lightning in the sky. Nobody can say that that flash of lightning didn't happen. It'll be obvious. Everyone will know what's happening. So he tells his disciples, away from the Pharisees, there is a physical kingdom coming. You can't deny it. And that day when Jesus comes back will ultimately be a very bad day for many people. Jesus likens it to the days of Noah, he says. Uh, these, these will be like the days of Noah, very wicked, filled with evil. But these are also going to be the days where few are received into the ark and protected, and many will drown in the flood of God's wrath. But it will be a great day for God's children. He ends Luke 17 by saying, okay, we've got this kingdom that's coming. Everybody will know when it arrives. It'll be obvious when it comes. It's going to be a bad day for a lot of people because the wrath of God will be present. It'll be a good day for some people. And then he ends by asking them a question. Which one are you? Are you willing to lose your life for this kingdom and save it in the end? Or do you want to save your life now and lose it in the end? What is it going to be? He's reaching out to the disciples, diving into their heart to say, Are you longing for that kingdom? As you wait for Jesus to establish the kingdom, are you longing for it? Are you a citizen of that kingdom or are you doing whatever you want to do? Ultimately, the point as he enters into chapter 18 is as you are waiting for that kingdom to come, this is what you're to do. And really, there's two points. If we if we think of uh, number one, the, the point of Jesus telling this parable, there's really two points, and you can see them in verse one. Now he was telling them off of the heels of, uh, is there going to be faith? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to serve me? Are you going to pray and, and look for and long for and anticipate this day? He's telling them a parable to show them, point number one, at all times they ought to pray. Uh, some translations say day and night they ought to pray. So Jesus is telling us a parable for reason number one, to show us that we should be praying for this coming kingdom every day. We should be praying for this coming kingdom every day. We should be persistent in our praying for Jesus' return. Point number two is that we would not lose heart. That we would not lose heart. Why does Jesus give us that point? Obviously because we struggle with losing heart. We struggle with giving up. That word for losing heart is... Giving up from exhaustion. I keep praying, I keep praying, I keep praying, and nothing seems to be happening, so I'm just going to give up. Jesus says, I'm telling you this parable for two reasons. Number one, I want you to pray every day for my coming. And number two, I don't want you to grow weary as you're praying for me to come back. I don't want you to grow weary as you're praying. I don't want you to lose heart. Lose heart, that word in the Greek, is only found here in the Gospels, but it's used by Paul elsewhere in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and verse 16. We do not lose heart. Galatians 6, 9, don't grow weary in doing good. That's the same word, lose heart, grow weary. Ephesians 3, 13, don't lose heart. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, do not grow weary in doing good. Just being tired, being worn out, worn down, enough, I'm done. Jesus says, hey, before I tell you the parable, let me give you the point. I want you to pray every day for my second coming. I want you to pray every day for my return, and I don't want you to give up as you're praying for it. Now, the parable itself. The parable itself. Verse 2. He says this. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Just as we had really two points under the point, under verse 1, 
We're going to have two points under the parable. We're going to meet two individuals. Very, very simple parable, very short parable. Two individuals, the judge and the woman. The judge and the woman. Here we meet the judge. He's in a city. We don't know where the city is. We don't need to know where the city is. He's a judge. Maybe he's a part of Sanhedrin. He's probably not. He's actually probably one of these Roman uh, appointed uh, governors that would judge and rule that the Jews hated these people. Their official title was prohibition judges. But if you just change one Aramaic letter in that word prohibition judge, if you change one letter, it becomes robber judges or thief judges. And the Jews would do that. They would say, these aren't our pro. Prohibition judges, these are Roman thieves. They're coming in, they're um, not being kind, they're not being compassionate, they're not caring, they're not judging in equity. So it looks like this is one of those Roman officers, a Roman judge, a Gentile. And Jesus tells us he does not fear God and he does not respect man. The judge himself says that in verse 4. I do not fear God, nor do I respect man. He loves being known for this. We meet the judge. Now, we will find out that the judge is really in place of Jesus. Jesus is the comparison with the judge. The judge is, in the parable, a picture of Jesus. But don't be offended by that comparison. That's a very strange comparison to have a a very wicked judge and Jesus say, yeah, I'm kind of like that. Um, There are other places in the Bible where Jesus does that, right? Even his second coming, he says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. Um, Jesus isn't a thief. He's coming like that. Jesus isn't an unjust judge. There's a way in which this judge is picturing something that Jesus does. And in reality, the comparison here between the judge and Jesus is one not of likeness, but of contrast. That's what Jesus is going to say. This isn't, oh, look at how he acts. That's kind of like what I act like. He's going to say, look at how he, he acts. I do the exact opposite. It's a contrast. So we meet the judge. Number two, we meet the woman. There was a widow, verse three, in that same city. And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. This widow is alone. She would have had brothers to be able to take care of her, but evidently they died or she had none. Maybe kids could take care of her, but they're gone as well or she had none. She is alone. She is destitute. She's been defrauded. And the law clearly states how this widow should be treated. Just a couple verses. Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24. God says, don't afflict a widow. And if you do, I'll kill you. If you don't take care of widows, I will kill you. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 17 says the same thing. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The Bible is very clear how this woman should have been treated. But again, we already know the judge. He doesn't fear God, so he doesn't care about God's law. He doesn't respect man at all, so he doesn't care about taking this woman's issue and defending her. So she keeps on coming. This should have been a one-time thing. Here's my issue, and the judge should have said, yes, here, I will pass down the verdict. You are innocent. This person's guilty. Let me take care of you. Boom, we're done. It should have been a one-time thing. But the judge is an ungodly, unjust man, so she has to keep coming. Very persistent in her coming. This is a a term in in a tense that would present like a, a present progressive. It's just continually ongoing. Never ending. And what is she saying as she keeps on coming to him? 
He says, give me legal protection from my opponent. Legal protection. It's really a bad translation of that. It's give me justice. Give me justice. That word, legal protection, is the word justice. It's the word used in verse 8. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Exact same word. And justice is used actually five times in this short account in verses 1 through 8. This whole passage is about God bringing justice. And so the woman, just forget the legal protection issue. She's screaming out for justice. This is unjust. He has treated me unfairly and you're not taking care of me. Bring me justice. For a while, he's unwilling. The judge says no. Verse 4. But afterward, he says to himself, reminiscent of uh, what's going to follow in Luke 18, where the Pharisee prays to himself. He's not even going to talk to anybody else. He's just saying to himself. He speaks to himself. He's very happy to listen to himself speak. He says, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her justice. Because she bothers me, I will give her justice. Whether this matter seemed uh, big or, or small to the, the widow, obviously this is a huge issue to her, but to the judge, who cares? This is a tiny issue. I don't care about you, I don't care about your issue, but because she continually comes to me, he grows weary And has a change of heart. Notice his change of heart is not because of his concern for her. He doesn't say, okay, I've heard her case for the thousandth time. And I realized I was wrong in assessing this. And she really does need justice. No, it's not about that. It's just concern for himself. I'm really bothered by this woman. I'm done with her pestering me. And so even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her justice. Otherwise, what's the alternative? By continually coming, she will wear me out. Two words there that are awesome words. Continually, usually translated as forever. Otherwise, forever. For all of eternity, she's going to keep coming. And what is she going to do? I love how he says this. She will wear me out. Literally, the, the word there, wear me out, is a boxing term. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. You remember the passage, I beat my body, I buffet my body, I make it my slave. Otherwise, I, I will be disqualified by doing what I'm not supposed to be doing. So, I beat my body. Literally, you can translate that word, wear me out, as hit me under the eye. She's just going to beat me up by coming over and over again. She's going to hit me under the eye, and I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm done with this interaction. I don't want this anymore. This woman had been beating this man up, as it were, with her requests. And with no concern for her whatsoever, but only concern for himself, he says, fine, I'll do what you're asking. So this incredibly powerful, completely impervious judge is defeated by a helpless widow merely because of her persistence. That's the parable. Short, to the point, two people, judge, widow, two points, pray always, and don't lose heart. Now the promise, number three, the promise, verse six. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Listen to his words. 
Listen to the way that he didn't care at all about this woman. Listen to the way where he didn't respect man. He didn't care about God. Listen to his words. And now, verse 7, in light of what he did, how do you think God's going to act? In contrast to this judge, how is God going to act? Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect? Remember, this is not a comparison of likeness. This is a contrast. If an unjust judge is able to make the right call with this woman, how much more is a good God going to take care of his children? This argument is clearly from the lesser to the greater. If an unjust, terrible, wicked judge can do this, how much more the God of the universe who loves you and takes care of you? Just think about this. The judge is unjust. Is our God unjust? No. Our God is just. The judge does not love the widow. He has no care about this widow. He hates this widow. Our God loves us. The judge has no relationship with the widow at all. But God is our father and he has adopted us into his family. We are his children. The judge's response is simply out of self-preservation. I'm sick and tired of this. I don't want this anymore. This is a waste of my time. And he responds. God's response is definitely not out of self-preservation. He gave himself for us. Doing whatever it took to preserve us. He wants to preserve us, not himself. So, of course, God is going to deal justly with us. We are his elect, verse 7. Will not God bring about justice for his elect? We are not strangers to God like this widow would have been to this judge. We are sons and daughters of God. The point that Jesus is making is not just get on God's case long enough and he'll do whatever you ask. No, Luke chapter 12, verse 32 says that it's the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants to give you the kingdom. He's not like this judge. So promise number one, we have two points. We have two people in the parable. And now we have two promises that God gives us clearly in verses seven and eight. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? The answer is, yes, he will. He's going to give justice. Whatever injustice you see about, you see whatever injustice you read about, whatever injustice you hear about, whatever injustice is happening to you, happening to you currently, God will take care of it. He will do it. And he will do it quickly. Verse 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them, for his elect, quickly. He will not delay long, even though it seems like a long time, over 2,000 years. But he says, I'm coming quickly. So promise number one is God will bring justice quickly. God will bring justice quickly. It's a promise in verse 8. But there's a second promise that we cling to. It's at the end of verse 7. Will not God bring about his justice, about justice for his elect who cried him day and night? And my Bible says, will he delay long over them? Some people take that to mean his justice will happen quick, quickly. Will he delay in his justice? No, he's going to bring it quickly. That is explicitly stated for us in verse eight. But I actually don't think that's what that word means. That's what that phrase means. The word delay long is most often translated in the Bible as long-suffering, forbearing, or patient. 
It's a word in the Greek, two words put together, macrothumia. Macro as opposed to micro as opposed to small. This is large. Technically, it's far off in the distant. And it's, it's a distant uh, as opposed to being near and close. And thumia is anger or wrath. So macrothumia literally means wrath is far away. Anger is far off. In fact, every time macrothumia is used in the Bible... With reference to God, it is always translated as patient or forbearing or long-suffering. Let me just give you some verses. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And 1 Timothy 1, 16. Those are just a few of many places where the Bible calls God a macrothumia God. A God whose wrath is far away. It's distant. I think what God is saying here, I'm going to bring about justice for my elect who cry to me day and night. And I'm doing it with patience. I'm waiting for them to respond. My elect to come to me. I'm waiting for my people, my sheep to be drawn in as they hear my voice. I'm waiting. So this phrase is much better translated as, yet he will be long suffering with them. Yet he will be patient towards them. So he's giving us the reason as to why the delay. I'm coming and I'm going to bring my justice quickly, but I'm waiting so that all of my people will be brought in. God is not willing that any should perish. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient. Macrothemia toward you. He is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's waiting for the salvation of his people. You ask, why are you delaying, God? Why are you delaying in bringing me justice? The answer God gives us this morning is I'm waiting for more people to respond to the gospel. I'm waiting for my sheep and my elect to come in. I'm waiting for everyone, as it were, to get into the ark before I shut the door and send the flood of my wrath into the world. Yes, God will satisfy his wrath but not before he satisfies his grace. He will satisfy his wrath, but not before he satisfies his grace. Thomas Watson says it this way, God is more inclined to mercy than to wrath. Mercy is his darling attribute, which he most delights in. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Mercy pleases God. Acts of severity are rather forced from God. He does not afflict willingly. Lamentations 3.33. The bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when provoked. Just so God does not punish until he can bear no longer. Jeremiah 44, 22. Mercy is God's right hand that he is most used to. Inflicting punishment is called his strange work. Isaiah 38, 21. Listen to these verses in scripture. First uh, Timothy chapter two, verses three through four. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel 18, 23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? I would rather him turn from his ways and live. Ezekiel 18, 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. 
The promise number one is God is just and his justice is coming. Promise number two is God is waiting and he's willing. He's waiting for people to repent. He's not delaying because he's not willing to bring judgment and to bring punishment. He's waiting because he's desirous of people to repent. There's an old rabbinical story that uh, the rabbis would tell of God's long-suffering, his forbearance. Say he's similar to a compassionate king who had a a country and and a town. And he told the guards and the policemen, if you will, of that country to stay as far away from the city as they could, to stay out. He, he stationed them miles outside of the borders of the country. And the king's wise men said, that's very foolish, because what happens if there's an uprising? What happens if people in their disobedience try to rebel against you? It's going to take forever for those guards to come back and to squash the rebellion. And the king says, that's exactly why I'm doing it. I'm hoping to give my people time, as it takes a long time for these guards to come back. Hopefully they'll come to their senses and they will repent. That is our God, a long-suffering, forbearing God who desires that all would come to repentance and that none would perish. So, we have our two promises. And verse 8, he says, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The question now is, what will this delay do to those who profess to have faith in Christ? Jesus says, I'm coming back. And I'm going to give you justice. But it'll take longer than you want it to. What will that do in your heart? What will that do to you? Will this wait, this delay, whittle down the people who want to follow God? Well, I'll follow him if he comes back tomorrow and if he gives me justice now. But if this is going to be a thing where I have to wait for a long time, there's a delay, I have to trust that he's going to do this, I'm not following him. That's why Jesus says, is he going to even find faith on the earth? As he delays, people are going to say, I'm done. I don't believe this. I wanted justice a long time ago. He's not good. He's breaking his promise. We put God on trial all the time. Let's be honest. We do this all the time. Okay, God, you weren't good. I, I, I asked for this and you didn't give that to me. And there was nothing that I did that was wrong. And so you should have given it. You were bad. Uh, you, you promised me this. It hasn't happened. I'm waiting for it to happen. We put God on trial all the time. But verse 8 tells us that it isn't God who's on trial. We are the ones on trial. God has never broken his promise. God has never been untrustworthy. God delays for good reasons. And so the question is not, God, what are you doing? He's told us exactly what he's doing. The question is, what are we going to do while we are waiting for his return? Are you trusting God to work in the problems of your life, to balance the scales when he returns? So, how do we wrap this up? Three points in conclusion. How how are we supposed to respond to the certainty of God coming back, of Jesus bringing justice, How are we to respond based on these verses? Number one, persist in prayer and don't lose heart. Persist in prayer and don't lose heart. That's exactly what Jesus said. This is the point of me giving the parable that you would pray always and don't lose heart. We should do that. Romans chapter 12, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Colossians chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. Ephesians 6, pray at all times. The Bible is so clear. We need to pray way more than we do. 
And now this passage has informed our praying. We need to pray specifically for God's justice to come way more than we do. While all the world is going down and while we're waiting for Jesus to come, we should pray and not lose heart. Luke chapter 21, verse 36. Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Yes, there's going to be a delay. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day, but he's not slow for his promise. The difference between a long time and a short time in God's economy is nothing. It's nothing in God's timing. But we have the promise that Jesus isn't delaying forever and he will come quickly. If this pathetic judge brought justice to this widow, we can bank on the fact that God's going to bring us justice. We can bank on that fact. So my question to our hearts this morning is, where do we need to persevere in prayer? Maybe we need to pray, your kingdom come, a lot more than we do. Where have we grown weary? Where have we lost heart? Maybe the first step that we need to take this morning is recognizing that prayerlessness is disobedience and confessing that as sin. God, I don't pray as often as I should, and I don't pray for the things that I should. Please forgive me. I long for your return. Ultimately, the privilege of prayer itself is only for God's children. So if you're here this morning and you do not know that you are one of God's children, then that's where you have to start. You have to cry out to him with the first prayer that he will ever truly hear, which is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Our sins condemn us to die. We've offended a holy God and we are to be punished for our sin. And God has laid the iniquity of us all onto Jesus and punished Jesus in our place such that God could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect life and God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived our sinful lives. And in that great exchange, because of Jesus' death and his resurrection and by faith in that proclamation, in that message, we can have eternal life. Do you know for sure that if Jesus were to come back today, he would be calling you home? Would you be in the ark? Or would you be in the flood of his wrath? Today I plead with you, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior and submit to him as your Lord, today is the day of repentance and salvation for you. Come to Christ and be saved. For you, if you are a believer, as you await the return of Jesus and you anticipate his coming, persist in prayer and don't lose heart. Persist in prayer and don't lose heart. Point number two, in conclusion, don't just persist in prayer and not lose heart. Number two, don't vindicate yourself. Don't vindicate yourself. You have a judge who will vindicate you. You have a judge who will balance the scales when he returns. If you have been wronged, he will avenge that wrongdoing. He will take care of you. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. Do not ever pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay. 
it's tempting to start working out our own vengeance while we're waiting for God's justice. Um, God, I know that you're going to come and bring justice and you're going to avenge me, but I'll get to work on it now and, and you can finish the project when you come. I think of it in, in light of the rewards issue. You remember how Jesus says, if you seek to be rewarded by man, that's all the rewards you're going to get. But if you wait to be rewarded by God, you'll get so much more reward than you could possibly imagine. I kind of think like that in terms of vengeance as well. If you want to take your own revenge on somebody, that's about all the vengeance you'll get. You might be good at it. It will tear you up inside, but you might be okay at it. But if you wait, God will avenge you better than you could possibly comprehend. You will not have been eaten up by bitterness. You will still have a soul that's intact and not been destroyed by your own vengeance. And God can deal much better in the revenge and vengeance category than we can. God can deal much better. Do you trust that God is a good God? Do you trust that he's a good judge? Job chapter 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? No, God is just. Genesis eighteen twenty five. Far be it from you, O Lord, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his works are perfect. In all of his ways, he is just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 98, verse 9, before the Lord, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's why the saints in Revelation 6, verse 10, cry out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Don't vindicate yourself. Leave room, as Paul tells us, for the wrath of God. And this is so important because when we stop and think, okay, God will avenge what's happened. God will plead my case. If the person who wronged us is a believer, how will God avenge that wrongdoing? He will avenge it because of his work on the cross. He punished that person's sin on the cross, just like he punished your sin on the cross. So as we start to think, God, I want you to to deal with them, to bring justice and just destroy them, we have to stop and think, wait a second, and I'll be asking for the same thing for myself because I've offended so many people. As we stop and we understand that this passage is saying God's going to bring justice, we will stop and say, I'm not going to vindicate myself. I'm not going to avenge myself. Somebody says I'm wrong for doing something, I don't need to defend myself in that. I just say God's got my back, and that's all I need. So, persist in prayer, don't lose heart. Number two, don't vindicate yourself. And number three, the last truth that we learn from this amazing little parable is long for the Lord's return. Long for the Lord's return. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. You know that section of scripture where it says that all creation groans for Christ to return. Are we groaning with all of creation? Are we longing for him to come back? Realize while he is delaying, realize why he is delaying. He's delaying so that people can repent. More people can come into the kingdom. So instead of kicking against that delay, jump on board with that delay. Realize, wait, he's giving us more time to be able to make disciples, to be able to share the gospel. He's giving us more time to do that work. 
as you're praying for Christ to come back, pray that, God, as you delay, make me faithful to make kingdom converts. Pray for more kingdom converts. Pray for you to be able to go out and make disciples. The bottom line is, it is impossible to live the Christian life faithfully unless you live it in light of the second coming. It is impossible to live the Christian life faithfully, the way that God calls us to live it, unless you live it in light of the second coming. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, knowing that something's going to happen with this work. In the second coming and in the future, in the kingdom, you will be rewarded and Christ will have the reward of his sufferings. Your work's not in vain. If there is no second coming, your work is absolutely in vain. But Paul says, your work's not in vain because Christ is coming back. That leads him to say in, verse, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed. And then he says, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I love you and I want to be with you. Do you long for the Lord's return? Revelation 22, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. That's Jesus. I am coming quickly. And so John ends by saying, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. May we live in light of that day. May we live in that kind of anticipation until he comes. Do that. Live in that kind of anticipation until Jesus comes. And watch how it drastically changes your life. Radically changes your life as you live in light of the second coming of Christ. God, thank you so much for your amazing grace that would call us sons and daughters such that we are not like this widow who is no relation to this judge. We are your sons. We are your daughters. We are adopted by the Most High God. And because of that, we can come before you boldly and we can plead with you. Right the wrongs that have been done. Come quickly. And until that day, God, we will persist in prayer. We won't lose heart. We know that you are not delaying because you are slow or um, you've forgotten us. No, you delay for good purposes. May we jump on board with those purposes and make disciples of all the nations. God, ultimately, I pray that this morning we would long for your return like never before as we see what it means for you to come back, as we see the glory of Jesus finally bringing in the kingdom and bringing to himself all of the elect, one body sealed forevermore. Until that day, make us faithful to long for your return. God, we love you. And we pray it in your name. Amen.